morning, we want to uh, go back and review some of what we've learned, see if anything stuck in there, and then we want to get some reinforcement on the things that we've been talking about. And what we have said basically is that the different groups, cults, those who claim not to be cults, whatever it might be, generally have some error with regard to who Christ is and the work of Christ. And of course that spills over into the Trinity and then we get into all kind of problems from there as we've been discussing. So let's begin our lesson this morning by asking if we really have the truth and this book here contains the truth and none other because it's closed, the canon of Scripture is closed, says not to add anything to the words of this book. But if we have the truth, then why would we say that what we believe about Christ is unique? Now, let's just think of a couple of things here. What's unique about our Christ, if we want to call it that? Christ of the Bible. Like nothing else that any other religions or groups really have. I mean, they borrow some of these things, but... We'll cover the whole thing. Well, how is Christ unique? He's what? He's alive. He's alive. Exactly right. He's alive today. He conquered death. The resurrection is certainly unique. You can't get that anywhere else. 1 Corinthians 15. What else? He's timeless. He's timeless. Yeah, we don't have um, Mohammed sitting somewhere on a throne that we pray to and he can help us now. He came to this earth as a baby. And what did He claim to be later on? God. God and man. That's what we're going to look at today in just a little while. Now, uh, how was this baby conceived? By the Holy Spirit. We have a virgin birth. That would be unique. When Christ was here on the earth, what did He claim to be able to do that he did heal men. heal men forgive sins raise the dead he did all kinds of things that only God could do now some might say well God empowered him to do that just like he empowered other people to do miracles some of the saints and whatever but uh, what would we say in answer to that when he did a miracle and then men bowed down and worshipped him, what did he say? He gave to his exactly right. But he didn't say, whoa, don't do that. Don't worship me. Because he said that um, he had come to do the works of the Father. And he said, I and the Father are one. So we have a lot of things. The virgin birth, the sinless life, many miracles that he did his vicarious death, his bodily resurrection, and his claims to be able to do what only God can do. Now we said in our culture today and in the world, there is a lot of confusion with regard to who Christ is and what he does. And some people would say, well, Christ coming, it just represents the spirit of Christmas. Christ was a good man, he did good deeds, and we ought to emulate his uh, ethic, his uh, moral and ethic life. And that would be the 
new birth if you start living a good life. Now, here would be the uh, Right Reverend Charles Bennison, and he is the rector of St. Mark's Church in Upland, California. And here's what he has to say, and I'm quoting. There are few causes to which I am more passionately committed than that of Santa Claus. Santa Claus deserves not just any place in the church, but the highest place of honor, where he should be enthroned as the long-bearded, ancient of days, the divine and holy one whom we call God. Santa Claus is God the Son. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town simply refers to God the Son slipping into the secrets of the heart as easily as he slips down the chimney of the house. Santa, uh, you wonder if he wrote this to be comedy, some sort of metaphorical comedy, but it goes on. Santa Claus is God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, in whose hand is a pack bursting it, it seems, with the gifts of creation. Santa Claus is God the Holy Spirit, who comes with the sound of gentle laughter with a shape like a bowl full of jelly to sow in the night the seeds of good humor. Santa Claus indeed deserves the exalted and enthroned place in the church, for he is God, Son, Father, and Holy Spirit. So there he is. God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. I've seen him in the toy store. I've seen him in his car on the thruway. I have seen him with his crazy beard and his baggy red suit. I saw more than the seasonal merchant of cheap plastic toys. I saw no less than the triune God. Now that sounds a little bit like blasphemy, like it might be. Maybe he meant it in uh, good humor and good taste. Well, we need to say a word here about Santa Claus because sometimes uh, children get mixed up with this uh, Santa Claus figure. Santa Claus actually is an invisible representation of a real person, Saint Nicholas. Santa is the Dutch word for saint, and Claus is the last phrase, the last part of Nicholas in Dutch, Santa Claus. Now, Saint Nicholas was a real man. He lived in Turkey, what would be present-day Turkey. It was Alicia then. He grew up in a rather wealthy family. He later became a bishop in Myra, Lycia, and he was known to be a very godly man. He was known for prayer and fasting, but he took his inheritance that he was given as he served as bishop, and he liked to help people. He liked to help poor people. He had a special concern for sailors on the sea, it is said, and he liked to help people who were sick, and he went around doing that. He was persecuted under Emperor Diocletian, but then when that was over, it said that he attended the Council of Nicaea. We get our Nicene Creed from there that's part of our church papers, a pretty good account of who Christ is and what it's all about. So this guy became legendary in the things that he did, and then somehow that evolved into the big guy with the red suit and the long beard. But he does represent St. Nicholas. Many people probably don't know about that, but as we explain to our children, we can tell them the true story of Santa Claus, who he is, and that uh, he represented a man who was a Christian and who really lived for the Lord. Now, if we wanted to study the history of Christmas, we would go to Luke 2. 
and we've taken a look at that some, and we'll be hearing more about that this afternoon, probably in the morning service as well. But if we wanted to look at the theology of Christmas, we could go to Philippians chapter 2. And I would invite you, if you have a Bible, to open up your Bible to Philippians uh, chapter 2 and verses 5 through 8. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 8. Now, some people call this the kenosis passage, but uh, we'll give it maybe a little better term than that. And as we look in this passage, uh, let me just read those verses out of the King James. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, with there is confusion based on misinterpretation of the Scripture, here's where it comes from. And people are wondering, was this Jesus Christ, God, disguised as a little baby? Or was He just a human being pretending to be God? And that's what a lot of people would think today. But uh, you wouldn't think He would be able to get away with that in His day. People today can't get away with that very well. Was he once God but became a man for Christmas? Did he just uh, rummage around the closets of heaven and find a man suit and put that on for 33 years while he was down here? Or was he, as we said, just the spirit of Christmas giving? Now there's confusion in all of those things, but we want to answer some of that confusion from our passage there in Philippians 2. What, in fact, did he give up when he gave up whatever he gave up? Made himself of no reputation, it says here in verse 7. There are some other uh, versions of that, other translations. Emptied himself, uh, made himself nothing, and we'll take a look at what that means. Now, at Christmas time, we think about giving. And God set the example of giving us His Son, and Christ was a giving person when He was here. But in life, we usually say that it's a matter of give and take, a matter of give and take. And in this Christian life, it is a matter of give and take. And sometimes when we think about giving, we have to think about giving up because there's always the opportunity to give up something on the one hand to accomplish something better maybe on the other. If I'm going to be a giver, if I'm going to give to other people, I have to give up maybe some things that I could get for myself in order to be able to give. And then when we say take, we might say take on, which means take on responsibility, take on a task. And we might say, well, she gave up the bridge club in order to be chairman of the missionary committee. So this thing of giving up and taking on is something that Christ did all throughout his life. But we want to find out exactly what did he give up 
and what did He take on? Because when we see that, then we can really rejoice in the true meaning of Christmas. Now, I've written some things on the board. So let's uh, turn this over maybe. And we're just going to look at five things this morning. So let's say uh, give up, take on, give up, take on, and give up. And let's take a look now in verse 6. We have a key word, and that key word is going to be morphe. Morphe, which is translated form. In fact, that word, that word and this word, we want to really understand the difference between because this helps us understand who this Christ was who gave up something, came down here, took on something during his life here. Now, let me just give you briefly an idea of the difference of these. You've heard a lot about the butterfly who experiences a transformation, a metamorphosis and so forth. But uh, we could say, think of an apple tree. Think of an apple tree at this time of year. Now, we look at the apple tree and we see the leaves have just about come off. And it looks like a dead tree on the outside. But down inside, under the cambium layer and the phloem and the xylem, we have a pipeline that is alive down in there. And it's all still the same down inside. There are a few changes as you get closer to the middle, but guess what? That tree is still alive. Now, when we get to springtime and nature begins to blossom forth, we're going to see a change in the schema of the tree. Schema is appearance. It's what's going on. It's uh, the way we're addressed this morning. I could think of when I came from Alabama. I was the same person when I got to Texas, but I dressed differently. I got my jeans and my boots and my big belt buckle with a radio receiver that pulled in some country and western music, and I got my hat, but inside I was the same guy. When I was in Alabama, I just wore a pair of Levi's. When I got to Texas, I found out there are tapered Levi's, there are skinny Levi's, there are flared Levi's. There are boot Levi's. And I had to give myself some boot Levi's to go with my boots. But inside, I was basically the same morphe down inside. So back to that apple tree. Now it's springtime. And suddenly, nature blossoms forth. And we see leaves coming out. And then we see little buds. And those buds blossom into white flowers. And it's beautiful, a beautiful sight. You can see these decorative pear trees on our road in the springtime. Good time to take pictures. But then as summer comes on and we move on toward fall, we see those little buds have become red apples and the tree has a different appearance. And then autumn comes and leaves are changing colors and the schema of that tree changes appearances. And the schema of Christ changed appearances when He was in heaven he certainly wasn't a little baby up there uh, sitting on the throne. But he left all that. He came down here. I can't explain it. It's miraculous. We can never explain the incarnation. 
But it's what happened. He was born with a different appearance. But inside, he was still, look at verse 6. Although he existed, he existed in the what? Form. The form, the morphe of God. Although he existed in the form of God, he didn't consider that equality with God something to be held on to. So that's our first thing here. What did he give up? Let me just give you an idea. How about this? He gave up his sovereign state in heaven. Now we don't know a lot about heaven. We know there are some angels up there that are God's messengers and ministers and do the work that needs to be done. And Christ was a part of the Trinity that was here from all eternity. And heaven is a wonderful place. And it's filled with glory and grace. You know the song. So good things are going on in heaven. But Christ gave up His sovereign state. He didn't consider that something to be held on to, something to be grasped to say, hey, I'm not going down there with those guys. Man, they have the flu and they have bad colds and sore throats and I don't want any part of that. Besides, he knew what he was going for and he was going for the atonement. Now, I don't know how that works together, but when he was 12 years old, you remember in the temple, he was discussing with the elders and the chief priests and so forth, he was discussing his father's work and what he was going to do. Maybe he knew about it at that point. We don't know. But let's take a look now. That's the form. He was in very nature God, but he didn't just hang on to his sovereign state. He did hang on to his morphe. What have we got for number two here? Oh, let's look in verse 8. Verse 8. And being found... Somebody be uh, ready to give us your translation. And being found in fashion as a man. Appearance. Appearance. Okay. There's the schema. Like the apple tree. Now he has a different appearance. Now he's a little boy. Running around playing with the boys in the neighborhood, whatever they did back then, taking care of things in the carpenter shop. He has a very different appearance. So, he's going to take on the fashion of what? Fashion of a man. Now, that's important because he couldn't come down here in the Shekinah glory and anybody's going to relate to that. I mean, he tried that one time on the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember, and all the disciples were up there, fell down on their faces and uh, didn't know what was going on. So he's got to change that Shekinah glory to become one of us. I was listening to uh, the story, the Christmas story of the 
um, man who saw the birds out in the snow and he wanted to help them get in the barn and he came out there and put food and shoot them and couldn't get them in the barn. They were too cold, caught in the storm and the snow. And he wanted to help them out, but unless he could become a bird, he's not going to be able to do it because they're afraid of him. So Christ became one of us. He was tempted in all points just like we are as he was growing up, doing the things that he did, and yet he was without sin. We can relate to Christ because Christ is not only God, he came down here in the fashion of a man. Now, that doesn't mean he just had on a man suit. That meant that he was truly man. He was truly man and God. Let's take another one. Verse 7. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Well, let's take the made himself nothing. Made himself of no reputation. Now, that word is kenosis. Kenosis is actually the noun. Ekineo is the verb there. But it means to empty. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself. And here's the big question. What did he empty? And you're going to have to help me with this. Some of you have some verses that we can read. But let's ask ourselves the question, what did he give up? Did he give up his divine attributes? Well, he may have given up some of them because we know that... Um, he said one time he didn't know the time of the second coming, only the Father knew that. He limited himself in some ways. But let's suggest here that he had to give up his privileges that he enjoyed as the Son of God. Did um, Jesus always travel around on the earth with some angels that could get him some water or Something to eat if he wanted to. No, he, he gave that up. Well, let's decide here what did he give up. Uh, first thing I would say is he gave up every advantage that he had over other men besides his sinless nature. <clears throat> he had to deal with everything that men had to deal with except being sinless. Now, does anybody have number two? 2 Corinthians 5.21 Okay, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What would you say he gave up there? He gave up his righteousness. He gave up his favorable relationship to the divine law. He was the lawgiver. Now he became, instead of being honored as the lawgiver, he was punished as a lawbreaker. So he gave up his righteousness. He gave up his relationship to God in terms of keeping God's law. He kept God's law, but then he had to give it up because we didn't keep God's law and our guilt was transferred to him when he was on the cross. Okay, what's number three? Luke twenty-two forty-two. Uh-oh, this is something that we young people hate to give up, isn't it? What did he give up? 
His will, exactly right, making his own decisions. He's down here, he's not making his own decisions. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, hey, if there's any other way, we can do this. Let's figure out another way. No other way it can be done. It had to be the shedding of blood. It had to be the cross. So the next time you're confronted with giving up your decision, remember, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's not a very popular one. Uh, number four, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Oh, this is a good one. Okay, what did he give up? His riches. Now, we don't know everything that that means, but we're guessing if heaven, in heaven, if the streets are paved with gold and they have all these precious stones and so forth, uh, that must be a pretty, a pretty high-end place, we'd say, heaven. And so he gave up all of that. There's no suffering in heaven. There's no sadness or sorrow in heaven. And Christ gave all that up to come down here to share in the suffering that we share. And it's almost inconceivable to us, but at the end when He's on the cross, when God is temporarily forsaking Him on the cross, He's taking on all of the evil, all of the wrongdoing that ever was committed. No wonder He asked, why have you forsaken me? Okay, He gave up His riches. How about uh, John 17.5? All right, he's getting ready to get some glory back again, but he had to give up that glory when he came down here. So we say he gave up his glory. Now, when we talk about glory to God, that's a little bit different than glory to man. If some guy wins the Olympic championship gold medal and we have a big parade and we are pouring out the glory and accolades and everything upon him that would be one thing but god would be the one who deserves all glory and honor and majesty and blessing and power and dominion and all those things revelation talks about and we want to understand that god is not on some kind of ego trip He's not up there checking the glory meter to see who is down here giving Him praise. He understands that things are going to work out better for us when we can grasp the fact that we need to glorify Him. We are the creature. He is the Creator. When we glorify Him, that puts us in a much better mindset than when we glorify whom. And we have a real subconscious powerful tendency to do that sometimes okay he gave up his heavenly glory uh and he said that on the mount of transfiguration that uh, mark just read all right let's go to john 5 30 all right this is close to making your own decisions, but what's he giving up here? Yes, his exercise of authority as the judge. Now imagine the judge sitting on the bench in the courtroom and 
Suddenly the judge said, well, this one's too difficult for me. I'm going to just take a seat over here and give up my position to you on the jury. Would you come up and be the judge? Uh, well, it wasn't exactly like that, but it was Christ giving up his authority. But then when he ascended back into heaven, and here's what we need to keep in mind, what did he say? Great Commission. All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. And lo, I'll be with you always and go and make disciples and teach them everything I commanded and so forth. And sometimes we start thinking, man, we're getting whipped down here. ISIS is creeping in. and No, we're not getting whipped. God is using all of these things. And remember in the Old Testament, He uses the apostasy of Israel to finally get people's attention. And I don't know if that would get our attention here in America. I remember when the World Trade Center was blown up. Uh, that got people's attention for a couple of weeks, it seemed. And then we just kind of went back to business as usual, trusting in the military, trusting in our leadership. He gave up his exercise of authority. Okay, here is uh, Matthew twenty-six fifty-one. No, excuse me, it's 2653. Okay. Hey, I can pray to my Father and the angels will be coming in here. I would say he gave up in certain instances his omnipotence. When he was on the cross, he could have called for angels and taken them down, scrapped the Romans and set up the kingdom right there. But that wasn't the way God intended it to be done. So he gave up his omnipotence in some ways while he was here. Sometimes he would heal people and exercise power, but many times he did not, particularly with regard to himself. Okay, Matthew twenty seven forty six, we mention this one. Matthew twenty seven forty six, he's on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we said it looks like he's suffering the penalty for the mind at that point, just momentarily, which was darkness, not understanding. Many things we don't understand Christ is asking why. That's a little bit out of character for Christ to ask. But at that point, God has turned His back on the Son who is bearing the sin of the world, it looks like. So momentarily there, He gives up His relationship that He had with the Father. Now, He still had a pretty close relationship during His earthly life, but it was not like being in heaven as part of the Trinity. And then this is culminated in the time on the cross where there's, a, there's somewhat of a severing there, it seems, and then he is buried, and then we have the resurrection. Mark 13, 32. We mentioned this one. Okay. So he's giving up his omniscience, his knowing all things in some ways. He still knows things because he can say to Daniel, I saw you and you were under the fig tree. And he can tell people things they didn't know. And he can know things that no one else would have known. But in some ways he limits himself in his omniscience. And the last one then, Philippians 2, 7. Okay taking the very nature of a servant. 
he gave up his position as king and became a servant. Now, what does that look like? How would we describe a servant in terms of morphe and schema? Mm-hmm. So at God's authority, a, he's on a position. He's in a position of something lower than a servant, and we all know what a servant looks like, right? And and so he's less. He was made less than that, in a sense. Yes, he was the suffering servant. Now, suppose we're going to have a work day here at the church, and I've got my Texas jeans on and my boots, and I come on down to get ready. Is that what, and I've got my gloves, is that what is going to really tell the tale with regard to my involvement in the workday? Nope, it's going to be something else. What's it going to be? Servant's heart, the morphe. Am I coming in the form of a servant, or do I just have on my schema, my outward appearance, and I look like one who might be willing to serve? When we serve as Christ served, doesn't matter too much what you look like on the outside, but it's what's in your heart. And if in your heart it's the heart of a servant, then you're good to go if you want to have the mind of Christ. So he took on the form. See, we're back to we're back to Morphe again here. He took on the form of a servant. Now, uh, quickly, what does that mean? If you're going to be a servant. Remember that little parable that Jesus told about the servant who was out plowing in the field? What happened after that? You remember that in Luke 17, I believe? He had to go serve meal. Exactly right. He had to come in, go in the kitchen, get everything ready, put on his butler's uniform, come out, serve the meal. And then uh, after he cleaned up everything and got the kitchen straight and cleared the table, maybe 10 o'clock that night, he had some leftovers. And then Jesus asked, did they thank this guy? And what was the answer? No, he just did what he was supposed to do as a servant. So that's the attitude we have to have as servants. We're not waiting to get some award for the service that we did down at the fire station or wherever it was we were serving, but we're doing it for Christ. And I'll tell you, if you have that attitude, that makes a big, big difference. Because if you're doing it for people, they may forget, they may be tense, they may be under pressure, you may not hear anything, it may be some valid excuse why they didn't get back to you. But if you're doing it for Christ, He always gets back to you in terms of the record that He keeps so we don't always hear from him, but we know he's there. We accept it by faith. And as we do it unto him, the Bible tells about his rewards that come to those who serve him. Well, we've got one more now, and that is in verse 8. And verse 8 says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. So, we want to take a look here at this word, upakuas. Upakuas means to hearken, and then it came to mean to obey. So it means that I'm really listening up, and then I'm doing what I'm told to do. So we could say he gave up his life. Gave up his life in obedience. He gave it up literally in obedience to his father. Now, we don't have the creed before us here that says he was very God of very God, very man of very man. But um, how could we, looking at this, determine anything that would help us to really nail down who Christ is? When he was in the form of God, what does form mean? Well, we got we got schema on appearance, the outward appearance. But form is what's going on down inside. Form is what's going on inside that apple tree where it's carrying up the nutrients of the soil through that living pipeline and causing the leaves to sprout and the photosynthesis and everything that goes on. So we know that he came in appearance as a man. That was his schema. But his form was God. Then we find that again, his form was that of a servant. He wasn't just dressed like a servant. He didn't just have um, an earring like uh, many servants had or uh, the puncture in his ear that uh, he's going to be in the household from now on. He didn't just have that. He had the servant's heart. And you can see that in the way that he served. Now, he was in appearance a little differently. He was a man, but he was a man and God. Oh, what did he give up? He gave up a lot of things, but he didn't give up his divinity because his divinity was still with him. He was God. And when they worship him as God, they are worshiping him in spirit and in truth, as it were. And when they say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, he doesn't say, whoa, whoa, no, you got that wrong. I'm just here to just to show people how to live. No, He is the one who has come. He is the Christmas message of God coming down to man. Now, you remember why we needed that. We had the promise to Abraham. Still, the Jews didn't get it. We had the law given to Moses. They really blew that one. They knew they couldn't keep the law, but they thought, I'm trying to keep the law. That's good enough to get me in. Then we had the Psalms and Proverbs talking about all the problems in the hearts of men and their devotional life. Job suffering, David, they're chasing him to kill him and so forth. Then we had the prophets. And the prophets told what went wrong when Israel turned to apostasy and was there any hope for the future. But we still didn't get it. So God said, well, it's time to do what I planned to do all along. And that is, I'm going to become a man. I'm going to send my son. And he's going to show people 
exactly what this life is all about that I intend for people to live. He's not only going to set an example, he's going to give them some good words. They're going to be authoritative words. And if people will live by that Sermon on the Mount, and if people will apply those things that he said, like it's better to give than to receive, and all those other things, then they'll understand it. But they can't do that unless something has changed down inside. They have to be transformed. They have to be changed into a new person. And that has to be accomplished. It begins at a moment of time when you accept Christ. It continues as we do what? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not... And be, be not conformed to this world. In other words, we don't want to have the heart of the world, but we want to be transformed by how? The renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Well, there's the book. Here's your mind. Here are the senses that we have to take it in. And as we take it in, we become transformed into the likeness of Christ. Oh, what a blessing. But we may have to give up some things, and we may have to take on some things. In fact, we certainly will if we're going to follow Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us enough information that we can understand. And yet it still takes a step of faith. We pray that we would trust in You with all of our hearts and lean not to our own understanding. Pray that we would acknowledge You in all of our ways. And Lord, help us to trust that You're going to direct our paths and make our paths straight as we seek to live this life that You've called us to live. We thank You, Lord Jesus, for coming to this earth for the things that You gave up the sacrifice that you made. We thank you for taking on these responsibilities and uh, living as a man, a human man, being a servant down here. We know next time you'll be coming as the reigning king. And we look forward to that because we'll be your subjects forever. And we'll have a resurrected life with a resurrected Savior in a resurrected earth for a resurrected eternity. And we thank you for that. And we pray today, as we consider the message of Christmas, that uh, these thoughts would remain in our hearts and help us to be looking for opportunities to serve and help us to be ever aware of opportunities to give up something in order to accomplish some greater good for your cause or for others. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.